Hello, welcome to It's Not Magic, a podcast from Sixth Street about business building that strips away the pretense and gets right to the useful stuff. I'm your host, David Steepleman. We use this show to talk to founders and industry leaders to get them to explain in plain English what they set out to do and specifically how they do it. This is our last episode of season two. I know you're used to every episode being special and substantive and fun. This is no exception. Today, we're talking about the most important technological development of the past 100 years. Historically, the chip industry wasn't so capital intensive. It's only in the past couple of decades where capital intensivity has grown as the manufacturing has gotten more complex. Because when it was Bob Noyce buying camera lenses from the local camera shop to make his lithography systems, that wasn't very expensive. But today, a new fab, an advanced semiconductor production facility can cost $25 billion. So it's arguably the most expensive factory in human history. And so that that's capital intensive. That's Chris Miller. He wrote Chip War, which everyone's been talking about. It's a fascinating book, a page turner, and among its accolades, it's the Financial Times Book of the Year. Chris Miller is a professor at the famous Fletcher School at Tufts University. He's an expert on the collapse of the Soviet Union and now on the vital role the global production system for chips plays in modern geopolitics. We've waded into geopolitics before on this podcast, including with Ambassador Michael McFall in season one. You'll find this conversation as informative and interesting on the birth and amazing growth of arguably the most important supply chain in the world. And maybe you'll come away with a lesson that pushing yourself to think across subject matters and to have and understand a lot of experiences is essential to navigating a complicated world. We recorded this conversation with Professor Miller live at a Sixth Street gathering. Don't be alarmed. It's not a shy bunch. So you'll hear some of the Q&A towards the end with folks across our business. How did we get to 15 billion individual transistors on just one of the chips in your iPhone? Until this conversation, I kind of thought it was magic, but it's not. Let's jump right in. So we agreed that we're not going to spend, you know, the full time like defining terms for people and like, you know, uh, uh, arguing over what Moore's law is or if it's a law at all. So I'm going to try and show that you were such a good writer by summarizing very quickly and you'll tell me if I got it right. Chips, semiconductors, integrated circuits, all the same thing. Correct. They are in everything. They're in our iPhones. They're in missile guidance systems. They do everything. They run the world. Correct. The more circuits, which are on-off switches, that you can get on a uh, – you can pack onto a chip, the more sophisticated the instrument will be because you can put more computing power into the chip. That's right. Um, Developing and making chips, it's super complicated. It's always changing, and there are very few firms, and it's highly inter- interdependent. And depending on your um, a geopolitical kind of mood, it's either an ultra-efficient globalized division of labor or it's really bad because it, there's a lot of choke points. That's right. Fair. Okay. I don't want to lose the – like there's a number of themes in the book. And one of the, one of the themes in the book is, holy mackerel, humans are amazing and have incredible ingenuity – so I'd love it if you could just describe to us what extreme ultraviolet light is and wh- how it gets used and wh- wh- what's that all about? Because I think that will unlock a couple of things. So if you go to an Apple store and buy a new iPhone, uh, the primary semiconductor in an iPhone will have 15 billion transistors carved into it. Uh, each one of those is the size of a coronavirus, actually slightly smaller than the size of a coronavirus. Uh, and patterning these uh, takes the most complex machinery humans have ever made. And one of the machine tools you need to pattern 15 billion transistors on a single silicon chip is called an extreme ultraviolet lithography tool, uh, which shoots rays of light, photons, uh, at a wavelength of 13.5 nanometers, uh, which is important because visual light has a wavelength of several hundred nanometers, which is far too large to carve transistors. 
Visual light's too big, you need small wavelength light. Uh, but 13.5 nanometer light is hard to produce. You need to have a ball of tin, 13 microns wide, that's a millionth of a meter, falling through a vacuum, pulverize it with one of the most powerful lasers uh, commercially produced. It explodes into a plasma uh, 40 times hotter than the surface of a sun. Uh, this emits light at a wavelength of 13.5 nanometers, which is then collected by a set of the flattest mirrors humans have ever made. Then it's directed via these mirrors at a silicon chip and carves 15 billion transistors into your iPhone chip. It's hard to comprehend. It's unbelievable. Can you describe like, how you actually, you take little balls of tin, you kind of increase their speed, and that's what you shoot into the, the laser into that. Like, how, did you, how did people figure that out? <laughs> so it actually emerged from uh, experiments in nuclear weapons, uh, it turns out. That, that's how they first uh, began to develop the, the, the type of um, UV technology. Um, but for nuclear weapons technology, you need to do something once or twice or three times. For chip making, you need to do it a million times a day because there's uh, lots of chips being produced and lots of transistors on each chip. And so the process of turning that science experiment into high-volume manufacturing that we all rely on took 30 years, and today only one company can do it. And that's uh, ASML in the Netherlands. How many, how many parts in one of those machines, roughly? So ASML doesn't know. Um, <laughs> several hundred thousand at least. The, the laser component alone in an ASML lithography machine has 457,000 components. It's produced by a German company, and so the Germans know exactly how many components in their machines. Uh, but that's just one of the main systems. So overall, at least a million components, probably more. And all of those components have to work basically all the time because if your mean time to failure is once a year, a machine with a million components never works. Right. And how much does this machine cost? Uh, around $150 million a piece. It uh, takes three or four 747s to transport. Uh, and they've only sold like, slightly over 100 of them uh, at this point because there are only a couple of customers in the world. Right. So when TSMC is making chips, is actually fabricating chips in Taiwan, they're getting the machine from the Netherlands. They're the only people who make this machine. Just to, to think about like all the different uh, steps along the way in the process of making these chips is just unbelievably incredible. And while there's obviously these risky choke points, like just to think about the amount of human ingenuity that went into that is incredible. Let's take let's take a bunch of steps back, decades back, in terms of like talk about how we started making chips and like the, the locating that in Silicon Valley, some of the some of it in Dallas, Texas, Texas Instruments, some of the personalities that were there. How did this industry kind of form? So if you think back to computers in the 1940s, they were the size of a large room, uh, and computers were powered by vacuum tubes, which are little light bulb-like devices that turn on and off, which were large, produced a lot of heat, also attracted moths, and so required constant debugging, uh, which is a big problem in early computing. Uh, still exists today in different forms, I guess. And the, these early computers were great for their purposes, but they couldn't be miniaturized. They were far too large. And so there was a, a race in the 1940s and 50s to find a way to miniaturize computing, and the transistor was the way to do that. In the late 50s at Texas Instruments and uh, at Fairchild Semiconductor in California, two scientists began to combine multiple transistors on the same chip of silicon or germanium, and that produced the first semiconductor that we know it. And so in the early 60s, they began to commercialize these devices. The first commercially available semiconductor had four transistors on it. Uh, and then thanks to Moore's Law, we've had tremendous growth since then. Maybe you should describe – I said we wouldn't do this, but describe <laughs> Moore's Law quickly, and it's not a law. It's not a law. It's a prediction. So Gordon Moore uh, was one of the co-founders of Fairchild and then later of Intel. And in 1965, uh, he was asked to write an article for Electronics Magazine uh, about the semiconductor industry. And he noticed that the number of transistors per chip was doubling roughly annually. 
And he predicted that that would happen all the way through 1975, at which point there would be 65,000 transistors per chip. And that was true. Uh, and in fact, it's doubled once every year or two since then. Right. It's all the way up to the present. We've had a doubling, an exponential growth rate, which is, I think it's useful to think of where else in the economy do we see exponential growth rates? An example is hardly anywhere. Right. Like imagine if airplanes flew twice as fast every single year. Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting to think about. Um, and I'm going to ask you at the end, like, I, I think I've heard you say you're a Gordon's law, uh, uh, Moore's law optimist, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you why. But um, I, let, let's talk about the businesses. We're here as a partner group. We're talking about um, our business, our cohesion as a group, how you work together. I'd love, I'd love your observations because there are some stories about, I mean, there's the traitorous eight, is that right? Who left Shockley to form Fairchild, then uh, Moore and Noyce go to form Intel. Like, why are they moving around? Like, do you have any any thoughts on there on that? In, in Silicon Valley, there was a, an extraordinary willingness to leave your founding firm, even if it was founded by a Nobel winning uh, a physicist, and start something new. And at, at this time in the 1960s and 70s, uh, there was a sense, which was correct, that semiconductors were going to transform the world. And, and more and noise and people around them had this vision uh, that. And Moore wrote this in his 1965 article that in the future, there would be personal computing devices, mobile communications. And at the time, people thought he was a lunatic. Right. Uh, but in fact, uh, he and people around him understood the vision that they were, all, um, they were all buying into. And they weren't going to let any individual set of managers that disagreed with them stop them. And so they repeatedly left firms uh, and their colleagues repeatedly left their companies uh, to found new startups that they thought had a better pathway to achieving this vision. I'm really interested in this because this is another theme of your book, which is like this this generalist view kind of wins out. There's the physics, pretty important. There's the how do you manufacture efficiently, obviously very important. Um, how do you – and manufacture in an error-free way. And then there's this – like you were just describing, this this, this ability to kind of see the field and, and understand that this is not going to be for military applications forever. And there's going to be this market that doesn't exist. And then there's like how do you price it? How do you sell it? What do you think are common characteristics of those? Firms? I mean, this is the golden question for us. The uh, characteristics of those firms that get that right, that see all of those things and, and are able to kind of execute on that. So I think if you look at the person who did that the best in early Silicon Valley, it was Bob Noyce, who founded Fairchild and then Intel. And he was an MIT trained physicist, very uh, brilliant in terms of his technical expertise. But what he was able to do is take the technical and envision a market that didn't yet exist. Uh, and not only that, he was able to explain it to everyone else who couldn't understand the technicals um, because he was smarter than all of his customers. Uh, he was smarter than all the people he wanted to sell products to. Uh, they weren't MIT physicists. That doesn't always start to interrupt you. That doesn't always translate into being a good explainer or a good marketer. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. But he, he, was, he was uniquely skilled at communicating his yeah. vision. And he employed lots of people who were not uniquely skilled at communicating. But he, <laughs> <laughs> but he rose to the, the top because he was able to connect the business vision, the communication of that vision uh, with the fact that no one challenged him on his technical capabilities. And and were they doing things – I mean inside, whether it was Fairchild and then Intel, were they doing things inside of those firms to make that – those conditions kind of succeed? You know, in, in the 1950s and 60s, it was a bunch of 28-year-old guys who just graduated MIT. So they didn't have a, a lot of business strategy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Noyce himself was a bad manager. He was a visionary. Oh, interesting. Um, but once Intel started growing into a sizable firm, he wasn't interested in management. Um, people thought he was pretty disorganized. Gordon Moore actually provided some of the initial rigor. And then Andy Grove, who would become Intel's most important CEO, was the one who actually 
made sure the, the organization ran in an efficient manner. Um, but Noyce had the, had the ability to articulate the vision that was able to get everyone to buy in, the, the workforce, the customers, the suppliers, the funders yeah. um, that set him out from all his peers. Let's, oh, and talk about the funders in a second. You know, you, you mentioned Andy Grove, and I think you group him with a couple of different people in the book. Um, Marita from Who Phones Found, Sony Morris Chang, who mm-hmm. I think is still around. And, That's right. Yeah, and I, I think you probably talked to him. So I think I you did. did talk to him. So I'd love to hear about that. I also would add to that list Lynn Conway, who transitioned from being a man to a woman in 1968 and got kicked out of Xerox and ended up in Silicon Valley. I'm going to group those four people together as kind of like outsiders. Andy Grove was a Hungarian Jew who grew up under the Nazi regime and the Soviet regime and had some terrible experiences. Um, then similar experiences in Asia for, for those two guys in World War II in Japan and in China, respectively. Like, is there something to that? Like, are they, are they like outsiders who just don't, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. What, is, is there some kind of common characteristic there that makes, made them effective visionaries? You know, I, I think it's, it's certainly the case that there were a ton of immigrants in the, the founding days of Silicon Valley. Two out of the eight founders of Fairchild were not born in the U.S. Uh, and you look through the the firms that made up really Silicon Valley, and that was that was definitely true. And, and partly that was because there was nowhere better in the world to work than Silicon Valley at the time. It wasn't called Silicon Valley then. We're being ahistorical. It's called <laughs> the Bay Area. Not until 1971 was it actually uh, given the name Silicon Valley. Uh, so partly it was because everyone wanted to work in Silicon Valley, but I also think uh, if you were a very bright scientist, um, it was a it was a place where you could take your scientific skills, have a unique vision, yeah. uh, and deploy it to a business. And that's why people like Grove, Morris Chang ended up working in this industry. Lynn Conway is different, I think. Um, she uh, she started her career as a computer architect at IBM um, and so had a background in how do you actually design computers, not chips themselves, computers. And she, uh, after being fired from uh, IBM, very unfairly, she found her way to Silicon Valley um, and was shocked to find that semiconductors were still designed by hand at that point. She had tens of thousands of transistors designed by hand. And she said, well, computers are very efficient. Let's use computing to design semiconductors. And it set off a revolution in chip design that continues to this day. Right. I mean, it has to be a major driver of Moore's law that you're able to do those designs that you couldn't possibly do by hand. And Moore's law begets Moore's law. Yeah. Now, yeah. Like geometrically, you would expect that. You know who I a character I really liked in the book I mean, he's a person Jack Kilby. <laughs> I love that story of him to tell the story of him showing up in the summer. No one's there in Dallas. It's hot. We have some people from Dallas here. It's hot in the summer. They tell us. Um, what did he do? So at the time, Texas Instruments had a policy of everyone got July off for vacation, um, perhaps because it's so hot. Uh, <laughs> but you only got your July off if you'd passed a certain tenure. And Kilby arrived uh, for work uh, in Texas too soon to get his July off. So he was free in the lab and spent his summer tinkering away, trying to find ways to produce transistors that were uh, more effective and had lower failure. And this is like the mid-late 50s, right? This is uh, 1958. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he had the idea of, well, let's put multiple transistors on the same chip, which is not a radical idea, but no one had ever done it before. And so alone, basically in the lab, he started tinkering and developed a a prototype that uh, he convinced his colleagues very quickly could transform the industry because you'd have failure rates rapidly decline when you didn't have to attach two separate devices. They were just carved into the same block of material. It's a pretty good first month at work. It's kind of <laughs> ironic. I was thinking, I was reading it, like the, the chips beget all this technology that kind of reduces the likelihood that you're ever going to be alone by yourself tinkering ever, which is kind of sad. <laughs> Let's talk about Intel because Intel is a really interesting story. They were nimble at shifting from 
kind of being freewheeling to deciding, you know what, we've got to actually like automate routinize and just pump out chips. Um, so how, how did they make that transition? And then what happened to them? So Intel was founded in the late 60s to make memory chips. And at the time, they saw themselves as a tech-focused firm, not a manufacturing-focused firm. And their technology was quite good, but memory chips were a business that was commoditized pretty quickly in the 1970s. And so their margins fell, and they faced the pressure on the market share. And so by the 80s, they no longer had a really functional business. And so Andy Grove, who was a, an extraordinarily hard-charging CEO, convinced Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce to leave the memory chip business in the mid-1980s and pivot entirely towards microprocessors, which at the time was a wild decision because the first PC had just been invented and the market was tiny for PCs. Um, but Grove bet that this was a product that Intel could dominate uh, as it did. And so he transitioned the company uh, completely to focus on microprocessors, which was a great decision in the 1980s and set the company on its growth all the way up to the present where they've had a dominant share in microprocessors since then. But the problem is they were too successful. Explain. The, the microprocessor business uh, for PCs is a duopoly between AMD and Intel. Uh, Intel has historically done better than AMD. And so it's had basically a guaranteed income every single year because everyone needs to buy a new PC once every couple of years and every PC needs a processor. And so it was remarkably profitable for a very long time. But like many monopolies, it lost its focus. And over the last decade, it's had really severe issues in missing deadlines for new technologies uh, and in missing key technological shifts. So the smartphone, Steve Jobs went to Intel and said, will you build us a chip for a smartphone. And Intel said, well, that seems like a pretty low-volume product. <laughs> said, no, that was an error. Second, AI. Intel was behind the curve on AI uh, and still is in the process of trying to catch up to companies like NVIDIA. And so it's, it's a great success story of American capitalism, but it also shows the dangers of being too successful. Right. Um, can we talk about the funding models? Because we were talking about uh, ASMC before, and it's $150 million to build this machine. It took them 30 years. We, we, we've um, maybe, well, let's talk about the Chips Act also. What's the right model? Because these are incredibly capital intensive things. They're strategically super important. Well, we also were talking about, gee, like if the government is your main uh, customer, that's probably not a position you want to be in either. And the fact that the industry grew so much because of the vision that there was going to be a private consumer market was super helpful. What's the right model? Like how, how should, what do you think the government ought to be doing? If anything, I don't want to presume yeah. that the government should be doing anything. Yeah. 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 So historically the chip industry wasn't so capital intensive. It's only in the past couple of decades where capital intensivity has grown as the manufacturing has gotten more complex. Because when it was Bob Noyce buying camera lenses from the local camera shop to make his lithography systems, that wasn't very expensive. But today, a new fab, an advanced semiconductor production facility can cost $25 billion. So it's arguably the most expensive factory in human history. And so that that's capital intensive. Uh, and so there, <laughs> there, you've got a tiny number of companies that can afford that. Um, they uh, all basically benefit from either a oligopolistic market that they sell to or government backing or both. Um, and it's almost impossible to imagine new entrants that aren't backed by governments. You made some comment that I wanted to follow up on, and I couldn't believe I was reading this book and I was going to get to ask you this question or any questions. Awesome. You talk about DARPA, right? The sort of R&D arm of the Pentagon. And you make a nuanced point, I think, which was, Gee, you want DARPA like pumping money into the system and like trying things out and encouraging innovation and funding it, but you don't want it to have too much oversight because what was that point? Can you can you can you elaborate on that? Well, I think there are, there are two interesting things about DARPA. The first is that DARPA has no career employees, so people come to DARPA for a five year stint or so from VC firms, from academia, 
and then leave. So they've got a set amount of time to accomplish their goals. And so that lights a fire under them yeah. and has them focused on accomplishing some sort of unique technological goal. And they've got a specific program they're trying to produce some sort of new capabilities in. And that's a, a really unique model. Uh, very few organizations work that way. But second is that DARPA's got a, a big budget, but it's hidden inside of the world's largest budget of the Pentagon. And so Congress doesn't really know what goes on in DARPA. Uh, and I like so how what, your voice got very low there because <laughs> we're not – we're <laughs> Okay. We'll talk about whether this ends up in the recording yeah. or not. <laughs> if you did a study of their success or failure rate, their success rate is not that high yeah. because they're taking wild bets on untested technologies. But that's their point. Nowhere else in the government could you get away with that, probably justifiably so. Uh, but in the Defense Department, you you can. Um, because you can call it a security investment, and it is. And so as a result of that, DARPA has failed repeatedly, but had some pretty big successes as well. And a lot of the interesting successes of DARPA are programs that looked like failures at first, and then 10 years down the road, somebody realized, oh, this failed project would be pretty interesting in a different use case. It sounds like a Batman uh, movie, but what's an example of that? If you look at an iPhone, for example, a lot of the technologies in an iPhone have their origins in DARPA programs. Now, the DARPA program manager was not thinking, let's create an iPhone, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but from GPS to the displays um, to the chips inside, uh, it's, it's hard to find a consumer electronics device that doesn't have part of its origin in a DARPA program. Got it. Um, Russian history, Russian intellectual history, economic history, w- is this a departure for you or did this, was this an outgrowth, th- this, this project I'm working on chips? I started planning to write a book on the Cold War arms race. I want to understand what explains why the Soviet Union and the U.S. were both able to produce the key military technologies of the early Cold War, nuclear weapons and long-range delivery systems. But by the end of the Cold War, the Soviets weren't able to keep up, which sort of seemed – you know, we take it for granted, but it sort of seemed puzzling, actually. Smart physicists, well, they had those. Uh, Lots of capital investment, they had that. Good education system, massive defense budget. What went wrong? Uh, and it became clear as you start looking through defense technologies that actually the key transformative component in all military systems over the past half century has been computing power. Um, and it's not a coincidence that semiconductors emerged for missile guidance systems during the Cold War. You talk about um, the Soviet efforts to steal this technology, and they were remarkably successful at reconstructing things. But what, why didn't that help? Well, the, the problem in the chip industry is that there's, there's two problems. One is that if you if you buy a cake, you don't necessarily know how to bake it. Same thing if you steal a chip, you don't necessarily know how to make the chip. Uh, and the second is that even if you find out how to make the chip five years later, well, Moore's law has raced ahead and you're far behind. Uh, and the, the Soviet Union was focused on copying from day one. They actually had uh, students in physics at Stanford in the late 1950s and early 1960s studying with Bill Shockley, who just won the Nobel Prize for making the transistor. And uh, several of these students uh, came back to the Soviet Union, handed chips that they had pocketed uh, to the Soviet uh, radio electronics minister who was in charge of the electronics industry. Uh, and uh, at one point, he handed a chip back to them and said, copy it. And that, that was the origin of the Soviet chip industry. And copying seemed like a good strategy because it worked really well with the atomic bomb. Yeah. <laughs> but it worked very, very badly uh, with computing. You're just always going to be behind. Did anyone try to innovate? Do you have any knowledge of that inside the Soviet uh, Union? Certainly. Uh, certainly people were trying to innovate, but the structure of their system, super secretive, uh, no consumer market, meant that uh, the incentives just weren't there. The, the, the person who devised the first integrated circuit in the Soviet Union was not known until after the Cold War ended because it was done in a military lab. Uh, interesting. It, it raises the question of your process because 
my perception is that as as an academic who's looking at governments and you're looking at government records, they're either they're well kept or they're not well kept, but you can kind of they're they're public, they they get released. Very different doing research. I should ask this as a question: Is it very different doing research uh, on companies and these personalities? And records are kind of self serving; they're not necessarily organized. Like, what was the challenge of that? Well, government records can be self serving too. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, some companies have great art. Uh, archives like Texas Instruments has an extraordinary archive at Southern Massachusetts University. You can go into and look at what Morris Chang was writing about in the 1970s. Oh, wow. uh, others do not. Um, and so much of the research for this book was interviews with people who were uh, in the industry, whether scientists, CEOs, uh, government officials were engaging it. Uh, and that let me understand not only the technology has changed, but also the personalities in the businesses, uh, which is great fun. So Morris Chang, for example, someone I had a chance uh, to speak with you know, it's, it's one thing to talk to his colleagues and read about his accomplishments, but actually hearing his narration of how it was that he rose up the ranks at TI and what he was doing on the production lines of the early uh, transistors and semiconductors gives you a whole different flavor um, for uh, his success, for example. His going to Taiwan, right? You should tell that story. And uh, what, what was his take on like why they passed him over at TI? As a background, maybe Morris Chang, born in mainland China, spent his childhood fleeing the Japanese armies during World War II. Uh, his father was a, a banker and a nationalist government official. Uh, so they fled after the communists took power in 49. He enrolled at Harvard in 1950, the only Chinese student in his class. Sort of an extraordinary data point on how America has changed since then. And uh, wanted to study Shakespeare. Uh, loved English literature until his uncle told him to do something useful with his life. And so he transferred to MIT, which ended up being good. And so after MIT, <laughs> thankfully for his uncle, uh, we've got uh, transistors with high capabilities because he focused on something besides Shakespeare. And so he uh, got a job at Texas Instruments at a time when the industry was just taking off. And he had a reputation for a unique capability to have the right intuition for how to improve manufacturing processes. He was a manufacturing guy fundamentally. Um, and he spent his career in manufacturing. Uh, and he, he rose up the ranks at TI and was passed over uh, in the 1980s for the CEO job. Now, there's two explanations why. He didn't tell me what she believes. One, one story is that Texas Instruments was a company in Texas. There weren't a lot of Chinese people in Texas either, and that it was just seemed to be unacceptable to have a Chinese CEO. That's one possibility. Uh, two is that there were some personnel struggles, personality disputes, and so that's the explanation. Maybe both are true. Hard to know. How, how would you weight them? Do you, do you, do you have a view? Well, I, I asked Morshing what it was like to move from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Texas, uh -huh. you know, with, with probably some preconceived notions as someone who lives right outside of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And he said that he found Texas much more welcoming than Cambridge. Um, so he had nothing but good things to say about the people of Texas. Got it. Um, we have a couple of Texans here who are very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> um, there you go. Uh, what was it like to talk with him? So he's over 90 right now. Yeah. He's ostensibly retired, but uh, still does interviews from his office at TSMC, so not really retired. Uh, and he's one of the most powerful people in Taiwan because TSMC makes up over a third of Taiwan's exports. It's the most valuable publicly traded company in Asia. Uh, so if, if there's a, a tycoon in Taiwan, it's him. And he's regularly interviewed now about his views on China and sure. military risk, um, but actually hardly ever asked about his career in the 1950s. And so he was very generous with his time talking about his early career and explaining uh, how it is that he got involved in this to begin with. And you know, I think his, his career is fascinating because there's no one whose trajectory tracks the chip industry from the earliest days up to the present, not only in terms of the way the technology has changed. He was there on the production lines when TI was basically making transistors by hand, all the way up to the present where his facilities are producing a quintillion chips 
a year for Apple's iPhones. But also the, the geography he maps onto as well, from China, lived in the U.S., moved to Taiwan, which is exactly what the chip industry has done. That's incredible. Who, any, any other good stories in terms of uh, who you interviewed? Who, who, did you, who did you like spending time with? The one that stood out was Carver Mead, the Caltech physicist, chemist, um, who also was present at the creation of the chip industry. He has a story of Gordon Moore walking into his office before they'd had a chance to meet in the late 1950s and pulling a sock out of his briefcase with a bunch of uh, early transistors in it and giving it to Carver Mead to uh, play with in his electronics classes. <laughs> um, and and he was uh, he was someone as well who'd been there from the early days of the industry all the way up to the present, played a huge role in transistor design in the early stages, but then also devised a lot of the um, uh, neural network thinking that eventually led, led to uh, the use of transistors and semiconductors for AI uh, today. Got it. You referenced the sort of um, more recent geopolitical tensions, right? This idea of responsible stakeholder theory, stakeholder theory, is that dead? Or we should we not count on that? Should we not count on trade spreading knowledge and friendship? And are you a pessimist? How should we think about that? Well, I think history does not suggest that trade produces peace. It would be nice if it did, but it doesn't. Uh, and it's not just the history of the last 12 months with you know Russia and Germany uh, finding that their gas relationship did not produce peace. It's, it's hard to find good evidence historically that trade produces peace. Britain and Germany before World War I, there's a, a long list of countries that have been deeply integrated in terms of trade investment and nevertheless gone to war at extraordinary economic cost uh, to both parties. So I'd like it to be the case that integration guarantees peace, but I don't see the evidence for it. And I don't think hope is is evidence. And as a result, I think there's reason to be worried that, in fact, the situation is spiraling close to being the point of where it's out of control. And, you know, you look at the, the calendar of the next couple of years, U.S. presidential election 2024, Taiwanese presidential election in 2024. There's a lot of trigger points that could lead to a small crisis, and a small crisis could very easily lead to a big crisis. In terms of bringing chip manufacturing back on shore, in terms of like releasing these choke points, what should we be looking at to see whether or not our uh, policies are working in that regard? Yeah, I think if you ask the U.S. government off the record, they will tell you that the goal of the CHIPS Act is as an insurance policy in case there's a, a war in the Taiwan Straits. And then the key question is how much chip making capacity do you have outside of Taiwan and outside of China? Yeah. And we're going to get more chip making in the U.S. than we otherwise would have thanks to the CHIPS Act, but also the Japanese, the Indians, the Europeans, the Koreans. A lot of countries are pouring money into semiconductors right now. And so we're going to have a less Taiwan-focused semiconductor supply chain over the next decade. Not dramatically less, but less, meaningfully less. It's not clear we're going to have a less China-focused semiconductor supply chain because China is spending probably as much money as all the other countries I mentioned combined yeah. building out its own industry. Uh, and so that creates a very interesting dynamic where you have risk of overcapacity because everyone is trying to provide themselves with an insurance policy. That's interesting. I mean, we also block the sale of components to companies that would then manufacture in China. What are you looking at to see when that's working? I saw some announcement last week, I think on Bloomberg or something that China said, announced that they were reducing funding to, to chip research, which I think was met with a lot of skepticism. Yeah, that was one Bloomberg headline yeah. that seemed to contradict the last decade of Bloomberg headlines. So I don't read too much <laughs> into that. I think that the U.S. government is is focused on controlling the transfer of advanced GPU chips, the chips that you use for training AI systems and data centers to China on the grounds that you can't train AI today without access to advanced data centers. Advanced data centers need these chips, and these chips are all produced in Taiwan. So the U.S. has a chokehold over them. Right. And the goal, 
that Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, very clearly and explicitly articulated in a speech last September is to stop China from developing as advanced AI systems as the U.S. and its allies for civilian or military purposes. Got it. Let's talk about the future a little bit. You're a Moore's Law optimist. What does that mean? There's a, a lot of people who look at the trajectory that companies like TSMC have sketched out, and they've got a, a five to seven year roadmap as to how they're going to keep shrinking transistors smaller and smaller. And they say, well, after five or seven years, no one knows what's next. And that's true. No one knows what the next innovation is going to be that lets you shrink even further. But that's always been the case. Going back to the 1980s, you can find very esteemed computer experts saying Moore's Law is almost dead. Gordon Moore himself in the 2000s said he couldn't imagine how it could be continued. <laughs> Carver Mead uh, said something similar around the same time, and it's always continued. So I, I am a Moore's Law optimist. I think the amount of uh, money going into R&D, uh, the amount of uh, different techniques we have to keep it's not just shrinking transistors. We can stack transistors. Uh, we can reorganize ships to provide more floor space for transistors. There's lots of different techniques at play. And so I'm just really skeptical that given the focus uh, and given the track record, we're going to face a limited computing power. Now, there's one key caveat, which is that Gordon Moore's the, – the, the proper articulation of Moore's law, as he put it in 1965, was that uh, not only would the number of transistors double every year or two, but the average cost per transistor would decline. In other words, we get a free lunch of computing power every year or two, and that historically was true. That relationship broke down about five years ago. Huh. So now the cost per transistor is not declining, and by some estimates, it's even rising slightly as it gets more complex to layer transistors on top of each other. And so that's a big shift. We get more computing capabilities, but we finally have to pay for them for the first time basically ever. Got it. You made an interesting prediction in the book or, or, or an observation about where the most sophisticated or uh, higher end, I'll get, I guess, computing power innovations are going versus lesser ones, and you call it like the fast lane, slow lane. Can you explain what that, that, that I think has a lot of implications for like where money goes and where, so can you talk about that? Yeah. So over the past couple of decades, advances in microprocessors that go in PCs or data centers have been so substantial that it hasn't made sense to devise specific chips for specific applications when it comes to basic computing. It was always better just to wait for the next Intel microprocessor. It'd be two times as good. Yeah. And that would provide you the performance you needed. One of the ways you can get around the fact that it's harder to eke out uh, performance gains that Moore's Law needs is that you can devise specific architectures for chips that solve specific problems. So, for example, if Amazon is uh, designing its own chips that are specifically designed for its own workloads in its data centers. Google does the same thing, Facebook. Um, and we're going to see more companies doing that. They're going to say, we're willing to pay more to design chips that will give us more performance than a general purpose microprocessor. And for companies that are willing to pay more, they're going to get performance out of it. And for those of us who aren't willing to pay more are going to get slightly less impressive chips. But I think that the trend is going to be more companies being willing to pay more. Right now, it's just the big cloud computing firms, but it's going to be auto firms. It's going to be industrial firms down the road because the gains to specializing your chip design will be substantial. I hesitate to ask this in front of Marty and Adam, but I'm going to. What's quantum computing? And doesn't, <laughs> does that obviate the need to talk about chips anymore? Look, I, I think quantum computing is going to be a big deal when it materializes. I think we're probably some way away from the first commercially the, the first commercially viable use case of quantum computing. And then the history of classical computing suggests that there's going to be a long process of integration of quantum computing into economy and society. So I don't think we need to really think that hard about quantum computing disrupting classical computing for at least the next decade and possibly longer. Okay. 
I'm not going to worry about it then. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> Did you expect the popular upswell of attention to this book? I, I was. I, think I mean, you were hopeful. I'm sure. Yeah, I was yeah. hopeful. <laughs> no, I was surprised. I mean, I, I was writing this book before the semiconductor shortage, which really put semiconductors on the map for most people. Yeah. And then before the recent regulations that the Biden administration imposed on uh, transferring chips to China, which has been a big deal in terms of getting semiconductors discussed in Washington and elsewhere. Yeah. You, you think the government was behind? I think you have that view in your book that like they kind of didn't get it. Yeah. I think I think that's changed in the last five years, um, but for. You can find I've, I've spoken with people in the government 15 years ago who said the U.S. is falling behind Taiwan and South Korea. And there was a, a view in Washington that, well, our tech companies are big and globalization is simple and it doesn't really matter. And I think if there's peace in Asia, I think that view is correct. But I guess I'm more worried than uh, than people were 10 years ago. What's the gadget weapon thing that blows your mind when you think about the power of computing and what, what, like what we're using it to possibly develop? I think the device that people don't think enough about is data centers because data centers are where advanced computing happens and they're increasingly where productivity improvements are going to be created. We're going to have smarter algorithms that are trained and honed in data centers. And more than that, they're increasingly where new products are going to be invented in data centers. And so today we think of data centers as somewhere where it stores our data or it's the cloud, it's out there somewhere. But actually data centers are, I think, at the core of where the economy is going. Uh, and as a result, the chips that go in data centers will be more important in 10 or 20 years time than they are today. I, I sort of think of data centers as the factories of the 21st century and the chips are the machine tools that are hammering out new products for us. Huh. I want to open it up to questions if people have them and if you're willing to do that, I think you are. Uh, so by some accounts, China hasn't gotten much out of its vast investment in semiconductor technology or building their own capability. Why? And do you think that will continue or will change? So I, I think it – first off, assessing what China's gotten I think depends on whether you're assessing commercial viability or not commercial viability. In terms of successful companies in the chip industry, China has hardly any. And those that have been successful have only been successful thanks to really dramatic amounts of government uh, subsidies. Why? I think the answer is because it's really hard. <laughs> the trend in the chip industry has not been of catch up, but of falling behind. There used to be more firms that could produce the cutting edge. And now there are fewer than there were 10 years ago because the cutting edge race is ahead and it's harder to catch up. So when people say, why hasn't China caught up? I say, well, well why has the US, Japan and Europe fallen behind? I think that's the question we ought to be asking. So I'm not really that surprised in some ways that China hasn't um, caught up. But I, I do think that if you look at the challenges China faces now in terms of uh, creating market-leading firms, the problem is that the way that's been done historically is by deeply integrating into supply chains. So TSMC, extraordinary capabilities, but they're made possible by buying the best components from the Netherlands, from the US, and by selling to the most impressive customers and learning across the supply chain. And that's worked great for TSMC, Samsung, a uh, similar story. For Chinese firms, that's very difficult to do because they're increasingly restricted from that. Learning across the supply chain, in other words, understanding like how to put stuff together from different places, but also seeing what designs people want. Yeah, yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is veering into opinion territory, but if all of these other countries are taking out insurance policies and sort of devaluing Taiwan's own insurance policy, do you have thoughts on implications, other things that they or other countries could, should be doing? Well, it's an interesting uh, question for Taiwan 
because right now it's TSMC is the most important business by far in Taiwan and the semiconductor industry in general uh, is is Taiwan's most important sector. And so the Taiwanese are deeply worried that the U.S. and Japan and others are hollowing out their industry. And you know, there's actually a little bit of truth to that in that we're directly subsidizing TSMC to build facilities here rather than there. I think it's a really complex balancing act that's got to be struck. Uh, and on the one hand, the U.S. is defending Taiwan, putting the lives of Americans on the line to defend Taiwan. So the U.S., I think, is implicitly telling Taiwan, you got to play ball. We're putting something on the line for you. You need to help us uh, in case something goes wrong. But it's a very complex and unpleasant uh, discussion to, to be had. And, you know, if you if you talk to U.S. officials on the record, uh, they wouldn't even mention Taiwan when it comes to semiconductor because it's too sensitive. Off the record, of course, everyone understands that the CHIPS Act is a, as an insurance policy. Of course, TSMC is building a big fab in Arizona. In Arizona, yep. yeah, yeah. As, as well as uh, one and possibly two in Japan and probably one in Germany down the road. Got it. Just curious, do you think the CHIPS Act goes far enough? And if not, where is it deficient? And then what about the other, you know, Asia, Europe, you know, are, are they thinking in the same terms that we are about having to defend this technology? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, my, my sort of simple math, the CHIPS Act is, you know, take your probability of uh, blockade or war in the next 10 years, and that'll give you your estimate of how much you ought to spend on the CHIPS Act. Uh, and so it, it seems to me that the the $52 billion that have been allocated assumes a pretty low probability of, of war. Who knows what the right number is? We could debate it. I, I probably would take out a larger insurance policy. I think other countries are doing the exact same thing. Europe's going to spend 40 billion euros or so on its own CHIPS Act. Japan is uh, having TSMC invest in Japan. India is trying to make a big play to uh, become a player in the, the low end of the chip making industry. So there's lots of other countries that are, are undertaking similar policies precisely with, with this diversification insurance policy mindset. What lessons can be drawn to chips that you have learned from all the work and study you've done on the Soviet Union in the Cold War? Like what, when you sort of take that, the pattern of things that happen and apply it to here, what are some, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, th I think the, the key thing that I, I learned while doing the research is that I, I thought technological advances were about improving the technology. And that's sort of true, but it's actually about finding a market that's going to allow the technology to be improved. And you, you think that Bob Noyce, that's what he did really, really well. He found the market that made it possible to invest in this over many decades. And had he not found the market, it wouldn't have been invested in. And so I, I think it's very impressive that he was one of the two people to invent the integrated circuit. But that on its own did not give us an iPhone. And to me, it's the matching technology to market that is underestimated. And that's what the Soviet Union did a horrible, horrible job at it. They had great physicists, great theoretical physics, great experimental physics, applied physics across the board. Uh, but unless you've got a use case and a funding model, you can only go so far. Yeah, I mean, I, we did a little of this before. I, I just want to press on it. Like, is there a characteristic of Bob Noyce or a characteristic of the firm that he built that like makes it more likely that you will be able to see that field? I'm, I'm struck by his his communication ability yeah. to explain what it was he was doing. There's a great anecdote of him. Uh, he was at his 40th birthday. They're on a, like a party bus out with his like parents. Uh, and he held up a, a chip. And this was at a time when no one knew what a chip was and said, this will transform the world. <laughs> um, and, but he was able to convince people that, in fact, it was something truly revolutionary. And it's sort of like – maybe this is a bad analogy, but sort of like Elon Musk and electric vehicles. 
And people thought they were not really going to happen. They weren't really cool. And then he, he's found the market for them. Yeah. Maybe that's a bad analogy. I don't know how you guys feel about Elon Musk. Um, but I think there's something to that communication ability that is critical. Um, and it's not just the it's not just the technical capabilities. If the analogy works, it's fine. It's okay. fine. It's fine. <laughs> are you going to let your students use Chat GPT? Like, are you are you going to forbid it, or are you going to are you going to like put guardrails around it? I don't think I want students writing papers on Chat GPT, but I'm not someone who's afraid of it. I think it's great. I use when my Gmail suggests how to end sentences. I use that. We all do, right? No, I don't. Uh, you don't I use refuse it? to. No, I refuse to. No, <laughs> I, I have to every, everything I'm representing that's composed by me and has to be composed by me. I don't want to misrepresent. I, I trust Google to finish most of my sentences. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I mean, it's a great book. We really appreciate your time, and uh, this has been super interesting. So we appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That was professor and best-selling author Chris Miller. We spoke with him on January 31st, 2023, when he joined us live to speak with senior leaders of Sixth Street. The history of the chip industry is full of mind-bending technological solutions, and it's one of those stories that makes me marvel at what humans can do together. But honestly, my biggest takeaway was that the generalist, the broad thinker, the multidisciplinary perspective, that makes all the difference. As Chris Miller told us, the physics was a necessary condition for what the chip has meant for the modern world, but so is a free market economy and marketing vision, the ability to communicate, the willingness to tinker, and the ability to be a decent manager of humans. The practice and mindset of intellectual openness to follow paths to wherever they lead means you have a shot at navigating hard questions of when do you copy and when do you innovate? How do you know when to pivot? What will the use cases that you can't necessarily see? And who are the right people for the key seats at a given time? The story of chips that Chris helped us think about is the story of a broad knowledge base equipping us to see patterns and make better decisions. So read books and make sure Chip War is one of them. Thank you again to Chris Miller for joining us at our event and for being a part of this podcast. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can read more about our guests on SixthStreet.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow at Sixth Street News on Twitter for more on the show and our firm. Thanks to Sixth Street's production team, Patrick Clifford and Ritby Shaw, putting this together with sound engineering by Stephen Cologne. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original creation by Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Stiefelman. Thanks for listening. Views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any investing, financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details. Mm-hmm.